That reading from 1 Corinthians 6, our New Testament reading, was a bracing one, wasn't it? Bruising, perhaps, for our modern ears and contemporary sensibilities. Taking that reading in combination with the Acts 15 reading, our gospel reading, there's kind of this impression, perhaps, that emerges there, that there's a particular moral vision, a particular moral vision to the gospel, to following Jesus, and a costly one, perhaps, at that, whoever has given up all these things to follow me. A moral vision that costs us something. This morning, we are talking about sex. We have a, a lunch and learn next week to unpack a bit the Bible and the church's teachings around marriage and sexuality, unpacking in a more in-depth way the Anglican church's teaching about marriage is exclusively between a man and a woman, unpacking some of the ramifications for our common life. There'll be some heavy lifting around that next week but following the service. But this week, in a more general way, I wanted to talk about the topic of sexuality in the human body. And in particular, the vision, the moral vision that Jesus, that scripture, the word of God give for us. The scriptural gospel moral vision. One of the challenges perhaps we face as Christians in the contemporary world is this this issue, this objection to the Christian faith. Perhaps you've heard it put something like this. Christians are far too regressive about sex and far too nosy. It's my life. It's my body, my bedroom. Stay out of my bedroom. We feel the force of that objection, I suspect. I want to suggest this morning that this objection, the questions related to it, the pressure we feel around that, is because we're experiencing something of this clash of visions. A clash of moral visions regarding the human person, the body, and sexuality. Between a Christian vision embodied by Jesus, articulated in the New Testament, and what the vision is that is put forward, that is in fact preached in our culture. And for many of us this morning, I suspect we find ourselves caught in the the cross-pressure of those visions. And what I hope to do this morning is to unpack some of those two contrasting visions and suggest for us that the Christian vision, taught and embodied by Jesus, is in fact good news for us all. In preparing for this sermon, I have felt the burden of, I have so much to learn. And I've drawn from a number of resources. I've read from a a number of resources from various perspectives along the spectrum of Christian engagement with this topic. This morning, three resources in particular have been especially helpful and formative, and I want to mention them right up front as a way of kind of like attributing, showing my work. One of those sermons, one of those resources is a sermon that was given by the Reverend David Short, an Anglican priest in my hometown of Vancouver this past summer. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I was quoting him so often that eventually I realized it would just be easier at the beginning to invite you to imagine quote marks around this entire sermon attributed to him. And I encourage you to check out his sermon. It's online. The church is St. John's Vancouver, and the the sermon is The Problem of Sex. The second source is an absolutely brilliant lecturer by the historian Dr. Sarah Williams, given at Regent College. And her focus in that lecture is on how human sexuality, how views on sexuality have shifted dramatically over the last 100 years. The last resource is this book by theologian Beth Felker-Jones. This is a wonderful, accessible, encouraging, and challenging little book 
In fact, this book is so good that we are buying copies for every household in the church. They were going to be here this week, but we are buying them in bulk. We contacted the publisher to see if we could get a, a rate, like a, a discount on it. But even if we can't, we'll pay full cost. The book is worth it. So I invite you to grab a copy next week. They'll be here as we have the lunch and learn. I'll be drawing heavily from these three resources, and I encourage you to check them out. As we jump in, as we dive into the deep water of this topic, let's begin in prayer. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for your mercy toward us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you draw all peoples to yourself. And this morning as we press into this topic, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be gently but perceptibly present to us. Would you drive far from us all fear? Would you drive far from us all prejudice? And would you give us the mind of Christ as we talk about these matters? Would you make the meditations of all our hearts and the words of my mouth pleasing to you? In your name we pray. Amen. As we dive in, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. Well, a couple of things I need to tell you. First of all, this sermon is likely to be very long and content-driven. I'm sorry for that, but kind of with regard to the sense of if you're going to say something, you should say it all as opposed to saying something limited and having that be misunderstood. I'm erring on the side of more content. We'll make up the time, I assure you, later on in the sermon or in the service. The second thing I wanted to say is as a priest of this church, as a priest in the Anglican tradition, I am firmly rooted, firmly convicted of the church's teachings on this matter. But that doesn't mean I don't have a great deal to learn about how it might be articulated and how it might be good news and received as good news. And I'm keenly aware of the various perspectives and the very personal nature of this topic. And so my goal this morning in every sense is that there would be no offense but the offense of the cross. And if in my preaching in the explanation here, if there is an offense to you, I invite you, would you please come and talk to me as a brother in Christ? I want to learn and grow in this. The last thing I would say about that is that we are, as as we're discussing sexuality, in need, tremendous need of compassion and empathy. Whatever aspect pertaining to sexuality, we are not speaking in the abstract when we do so. We are spe- or, nor are we speaking about people outside or some group that is them as opposed to us. Rather, we are speaking about people made in the image of God, precious in his sight. And however people might be labeled by the world or even how they might identify themselves, scripturally, all people are named as precious in the sight of God, bearing his image, worthy of respect, worthy of love and compassion. The absolute last thing I want to say in kind of the throat clearing is that we are all, as we come to this topic, sexual failures. We are all broken as human beings. We have all failed. And for all of us, that sin, that failure, involves this most intimate area of our lives. The vision the New Testament puts forward for human sexuality for the body interrogates us all, wherever we stand, whatever predilection, status, or desire we have. We might consider the church as a society of sexual failures, unified in God's grace. So to be perfectly clear, I stand, I deliver this sermon before you as a sexual sinner 
in need of God's grace, in need of his redemption and restoration. There is no room for self-righteousness, for smugness in this topic. We all stand in need of grace. A few years ago, some of you might recall, Facebook updated their settings around gender to include 71 different lists of gender. Before and soon after that, they changed tact and went forward with a custom option by which you could customize the description of your gender. Now, hearing news like that or something like that of what we might describe as the continued unfolding of the sexual revolution, the continued development of perspectives on sexuality, we probably have one of three human gut reactions. Gut reactions that are neither very thoughtful or very reflective of Jesus and the grace and compassion we find in him. Those reactions could be summed up perhaps as either yuck, yikes, or yes. Yuck, I don't want to think about it. Yikes, where is this headed? Or yes, who, who am I to judge? But none of these reactions are in fact Christ-like. And none of them demonstrate the hope we have in Jesus. If you have an unquestioning yuck, that's just prejudice. And the realities of homophobia, transphobia, discrimination in society and in the church, the suffering wrought by them, are a testament to the deficiency of that reaction. If you have an unquestioning yikes that's just cowardice, I just bury my head in the sand, I'll avoid thinking about it or engaging with the world around me. That too is a failure of love. And if you have an unquestioning yes, that's simply compromise, not reflective of the vision Jesus teaches and embodies. And the problem with these reactions is they do not allow for true care or true compassion. So what I'd like to do now is simply articulate for us in broad strokes this first vision, this vision that is at play, that is preached, embodied in our culture around us before contrasting it a little with the vision that is put forward, that is integral and preached in the New Testament. And I hope as we do so, we'll come to a deeper, more sympathetic understanding of what is going on in our culture and understand more fully the countercultural but very good news put forward in Scripture. Now, in this part, as we're charting kind of the moral vision of our culture, I'm especially indebted to the work of Dr. Williams, Sarah Williams, who I mentioned. Now, we might push back on this idea of there being any one unified vision in our culture, but there are trends and features that we can identify. And what Dr. Williams suggests is that our vision of sexuality has shifted considerably in the last 100 years. And in the process, sex has become a more commodified, more private thing. She argues this has taken place because of a series of separations, of severings that have taken place around the idea of sex. It has become disconnected from other elements and institutions in our society. And in her lecture, she's simply noting this, observing it as a reality. There's no value judgment intended here. It's simply an observation. So six separations. First, sex has been separated from procreation. On account of contraception, widely supported following the Anglican Conference of 1930, the Lambeth Conference that outlined a theological rationale for its use. Contraception became much more widely used. And because of that, you can now have sex without children. And on account of other technological advancement like artificial insemination, you can have children without sex. No value judgment here, just notice it. 
Noticing that in less than the last 100 years, this remarkable separation between sex and procreation. Secondly, she notes, sex has been separated from marriage. To a certain degree, this has always been an element of human life. But with contraception, there is a much greater possibility of viewing sex and sexual activity as recreational, as unattached to marriage. So 2016 saw 18 million Americans cohabitating, an increase of 29% over 2007, with the largest gains being made among the population 50 and older. And the percent of children born outside marriage rose in the United States from around 6 or 7% in 1964 to about 40% in 2014, with a great deal of variation depending on your ethnic or cultural context. This change, this separation of sex from marriage can be tracked in the language we use to refer to the person with whom we have sex. The word spouse has in many quarters been replaced with the term partner. And partner is as a term borrowed from the world of business. It is an economic term, a term of exchange. It is not a covenantal term, but a contractual one. And contracts are agreements we engage in so long as our terms, our needs are met and satisfied. Legal scholar John Witt has tracked this shift throughout history in his book from sacrament to contract. And he suggests a contract is a fundamentally different thing than a covenantal, sacramental vision of marriage. The Christian vision of marriage, as we'll discuss next week, is fundamentally other person serving, no matter the cost, for the entirety of life. It is not fundamentally about my needs being met. In her lecture, Dr. Williams declares, we all marry the wrong person. I discovered that Mr. or Mrs. Wright is painfully difficult to love the whole of life through. And what matters, she says, in Christian marriage is how we learn to love the persons to whom we are committed and learn to live up to the promises we made when we had no idea what they involved. I think of officiating weddings and people look their best. They behave their best. The in-laws are all calm and well-behaved and everyone's putting their best foot forward. That does not last. Just this week, I was reading an advice column in Slate, the online magazine. And heartbreakingly, the, the letter written in for advice was by a man whose wife had come to suffer a chronic and debilitating health issue. That likely means they cannot engage in sexual intimacy in any way for the remainder of their lives. Likely decades. A Christian covenantal understanding of marriage requires of that man the same fidelity and commitment to his spouse that he promised her on the day of his wedding. That he honor and love her regardless of the cost to himself. And that is a call and a vision that the ideology of partnership cannot well sustain. Sarah Williams points out that the ideology of partnership cannot peacefully coexist with the idea of covenantal union, of lifelong one-flesh marriage. Third, Williams notes, sex has been separated from partnership. We've gone from marriage to the language of partnership, but even here we see disintegration. Sex, she says, has become the ethically neutral activity participated in to find out if I might like to pursue a relationship. It's one path where I might determine if someone is suitable for partnership. Are we sexually compatible? It's a private recreational activity, nothing more. This is a very low view of sex. Sex itself does not establish intimacy. 
It is in unconnected from an ongoing relationship. Fourthly, she suggests sex has been separated from partner. Sex is something I do with my body, a, a recreational activity satisfying a physical need, eating or drinking. Therefore, it does not require relationship or even perhaps another person. Sex with myself may well be more physically gratifying and less complicated. Of course, technological advancement has made it even more, impo- more possible. So it's been estimated that globally the pornography industry is worth $97 billion. Think about that figure. There's a lot of variation in estimation, but think about that figure. And we live within a pornographic culture where sex is advertised. It is for sale alongside any other need-meeting commodity. Compulsive behavior around sex has become so pervasive. There are TED Talks on sexual addiction. There are Reddit groups devoted to supporting one another in overcoming it. Fifthly, Williams suggests sex has been separated from the sexes. She uses the illustration of sex as a document folder on your computer. Historically, heterosexual marriage would have encompassed the majority of that file. But now it is one file ever shrinking alongside all manner of other sexualities. Not making a value judgment on this reality, but this shift is remarkable and has taken place with an incredible speed. And it means that my sex, my biologically determined sex, is no longer determinative of my sexual activity. Sixthly, sex has been separated from our bodies. Our feelings, our choices about what sex looks like for ourselves are increasingly detached from the reality of our bodies. As the reality of gender dysphoria has gained prominence, there has been this decoupling of gender and sex entirely, viewing gender as entirely a social construct, unrelated to the physical structure of my body. And in that vacuum, the vacuum that comes from that separation, my psychology, my inner experience, fill it in. I define my reality. These are the separations Williams identifies. Sex steadily separated from procreation, from marriage, from partnership, from partner, from the sexes, from our bodies. And this is the culture in which we live. And I assume you would recognize much of those separations in your own life, your own experience. And like I said, Williams is simply tracking this reality but noticing that these enormous shifts have taken, over in the la- have, have taken place over the last century or less. And the question for us this morning might be, what is the vision? What is the moral vision undergirding this shift, occasioning it? And there are a cluster of convictions that support, that lead to these changes. But they're all rooted in what we might call expressive or even radical individualism. This is a cultural phenomenon identified by the philosopher Charles Taylor, a conviction that my highest good is my own individual choice and expression, that my identity comes through self-expression, through the discovery of what my most authentic desires are and being free to express them, radical or expressive individualism. And this is an incredible weight and pressure. We, all of us, are bombarded with the message that we are to believe in ourselves and chase our dreams. We are preached a narrative that our spirits have been suffocated by restrictive tradition and moralities. And that we must have the courage to follow our own light, to resist anyone who might stand in our way. We're told we must find our inner hero and boldly enter the freedom that comes when we become who we really are. 
You define your reality, and that is the path to freedom, health, and happiness. And that is an incredible and crushing burden. This reality, this radical individualism, shows itself, I think, in three A's. In autonomy, authenticity, and affirmation. Autonomy, sex is my own sovereign personal choice. To be truly free, I must be free from any external authority. I must be able to define reality free of the encumbrance of any other claim, free from marriage, from partnership, from biology perhaps. In this paradigm, the only ethical consideration is consent. So in this view, there can be ethically sourced pornography so long as the participants have autonomously, freely chosen their action. Of course, the Me Too movement, among the goods it has produced, has exposed the flimsiness of consent alone as an ethical buttress against sexual exploitation. In December of 2017, there was a short story in The New Yorker called Cat Person, highlighting this. Some of you may have read it. It prompted much discussion about what constitutes true consent. And the importance of that question in contemporary culture arises because it is the only grounds upon which we can name certain sexual activity as disordered. Not because these actions might be in and of themselves wrong, but because they transgress autonomy, personal consent. A profound question I know that has been wrestled with by, in feminist circles is, did Monica Lewinsky consent? Consent is not enough. The second day of radical individualism is authenticity. A common slogan for this might be, be true to yourself. As opposed to perhaps be true to your family, be true to your commitments, be true to your community. Be true to creation, authenticity. So in the context of my marriage, authenticity would say that it trumps my commitment to my spouse. I am obligated as an authentic person to declare to my wife, I no longer love you and dissolve that union if that is truly what I desire. Being true to myself is my highest calling. In singleness, being authentic means expressing myself sexually in line with my desires and feelings. The sin would be to restrain my individual expression sexually. I must be authentic. And the third A is affirmation. It is required of you to affirm and validate my feelings. If you do not, you are at least lacking in compassion and care and likely intolerant and bigoted, even phobic. We are determined to show that we are sex positive, and that means the unquestioned right for me to create my own sexual identity and to authentically express it. In her analysis of the separation of sex from these other structures and elements, Dr. Williams points out that this privatized, individualized vision of sexuality has led to its commodification. People sell and package it. And this vision, she suggests, has led to enormous exploitation, to great suffering, particularly amongst women and children. We don't have time to go into it, but she highlights statistics related to the feminization of poverty, to the pornification, the sexualization of children, as well as the reality and suffering arising in more subtle ways as our vision of sexuality in the body becomes increasingly fragmented, chaotic the tremendous human cost of radical or expressive individualism. Affirmation and autonomy, being true to myself, do not provide a sufficient basis for the love of my neighbor, for the seeking of their flourishing, the flourishing of others. 
That's heavy stuff. In contrast with the vision of radical individualism, we have the vision put forward in Scripture. A different and radically countercultural vision, as it always has been. It has always been countercultural. As we look at this vision, this is not about going back to some golden age to the 1950s or before. Patriarchy, hypocrisy, abuse have marked out every age. And much sexual disorder remained hidden in a way previously that does not remain hidden today. And that is, it seems to me, a good thing that it's not hidden. These previous ages need to be interrogated and reformed according to the good news put forward in the New Testament, just as our own does. Interrogated and reformed. We have in our readings this morning this passage from 1 Corinthians and from Acts 15. In the context in which these readings were written, the Roman Empire of the first century was a time marked by incredible sexual dysfunction and disorder. And in some quarters was so much more sexually permissive than our own than we could probably imagine. As a Roman citizen, you could do anything you wanted to your slave, girl, or boy at any age. The sexual culture of Corinth in particular was especially disordered, with prostitution a part of civic life and religion. The Corinthian church, to which Paul writes, was turning the Eucharist into a sex party. This reality, the reality of their disorder, comes through in the quotes that Paul uses in our reading this morning. All things are lawful for me. These are things the Corinthians are saying. Everything is lawful for me. Food's meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Articulating this view that sex is just an appetite, like hunger. I feel hungry, I eat. If I feel sexy, I sex. Behind this perspective is a view that the body is ultimately insignificant. It ultimately does not matter. The Greek view informing the Roman Empire of this time was that the real me is my interior, my soul, my spirit. And the body is just a husk with needs, with appetites, but of no lasting significance. I'm trapped in this body, but it's not me. So what I do with my body is of passing insignificance. The Christian moral vision is completely different. The Christian moral vision is to seek the good of the other person. Sexually speaking, my freedom is not to be used to satisfy my own desires. Rather, it is to serve the needs of Jesus Christ, particularly the body of believers to which I belong. So verse 12 of chapter 6, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. That word helpful means for the common good. He's not saying it's not helpful for me or for you as an individual. Not helpful for the community. This is the complete opposite of radical, privatized, commodified sexuality. And it suggests a much higher ethic than simply consent. Is it helpful? Does it contribute to their flourishing? To the flourishing of this community to which I belong as a whole? The reason for this vision is that the Bible, the Christian faith, have an astonishingly high view of your body. See verse 18, it says of chapter 6, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This word sexual immorality is used three times in the passage in 1 Corinthians. It's the same word used in our reading in Acts in verse 20. The word is porneia, from which we get pornography. And Beth Felker Jones in her book defines this as any sex that violates God's reality. It's sex gone wrong, she writes. 
deformed by sin that is contrary to God's good intentions. We'll say more about God's good intentions next week. But for now, we can identify pornea as sex that contradicts the reality of the faithful one flesh union of marriage. It contradicts it. That certainly would include sexual activity, sexual stimulation outside marriage, adultery, pornography, virtual stimulation, and the like. But Dr. Jones beautifully suggests that we might commit pornea against our own spouses in the context of our own marriages if we use them simply to gratify our own desires. She suggests battery and abuse might also fit this category as they fall far short of what is envisioned as actually helpful for the other person in the context of covenant relationship. Pornea. But why the emphasis on it, we might say, in both Acts and 1 Corinthians? If you're new to the Christian story, the Christian faith, you might expect here a long list of rules. But the rationale for this emphasis on sexuality is that God has such a high view of sex and such a high view of your body. As the quote in our bulletin puts it, sex is real. We might say the Christian view is that our bodies are real in God's view. He made them and sex was his idea. And as Andy Crouch has put it in a brilliant essay on this topic, matter matters. What we do with our bodies The physical stuff we are matters to God. And as his creature, as his creature, his intentions for our bodies leads to our flourishing. He knows what is best for your body. And the New Testament view is that you are not defined by your feelings, nor are you defined by your failures, but you are defined by Jesus Christ. And what Paul does in our reading is give us a vision for our bodies our bodies as the place of God's glory for the sake of others. Our bodies as the place of God's glory for the sake of others. Because our bodies, in our bodies, we ourselves have been joined to Jesus in eternal union. We're joined to him. We are members of Christ. And that union, that membership has three significant elements. First, as we sung, our bodies are redeemed. Verse 19 and 20, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body was made by a good and generous God, designed by him. Your body is not value neutral. They are a good thing in and of themselves. You're not trapped inside your body. You are your body. You are an embodied creature. And God has made us sexual creatures, male and female, apart from a tiny sliver of intersex individuals. And that we are made in our sexes is a good thing, a good gift. Felker Jones puts it, embodied sexual difference is good. And she skillfully in her book navigates the distinctions between sex and gender, teasing out the way our understandings of masculinity and femininity have been distorted by sin. She particularly writes of how a student of hers came to her in tears believing that being gentle was not a masculine trait. There's nothing innate about being a man that says you can't be gentle. It's entirely a sinful social construct. But she also emphasizes that maleness and femaleness are created goods. Male bodies are good. Female bodies are good. And she suggests making a historical argument that where this has not been held to, the goodness of male and female, that has been very bad for human bodies, especially female ones. And I think we are experiencing something of that in our culture. 
beyond that our bodies were created by God, Paul's point is that our bodies belong to God because he's redeemed them. Our bodies have been joined to him through Christ in his death and resurrection, not for selfish expression, but for the glory of God. You are not your own, he writes. Glorify God in your body. The biblical picture is that we are laboring under the weight of our own disordered desires, disordered minds, disordered bodies. We are slaves to sin. And Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, became a human, taking a human body, affirming ours, living a perfect life, serving the needs of others. And on the cross, he takes my judgment. And in the language of verse 11, chapter 6, sets me apart as holy, gives me the judgment on the last day, that in spite of my sin and my sexual failures, my disorder, he renders the judgment perfect, perfect, perfect. And this is astonishing news for every sexual failure. It is so easy to think that what we have done with our bodies or what has been done to our bodies is the defining reality. But for the Apostle Paul, the death of Jesus has an effect upon your body. And it is more powerful than your failure. It is more powerful than what has been done to you. We have all experienced, done, and have done to us shameful things. But in Christ you are washed, set apart, justified in his name. He has given you a new identity. You are not defined by your desires. You are defined by Jesus Christ. Your body is not your own. You belong to Jesus. So that means authenticity is not following my own desires. Rather, authenticity is becoming more like Jesus Christ, the one to whom I'm joined. It's freedom for the sake of others. My sexuality, particularly, is to bring glory to God. You cannot believe you have sexual autonomy and follow Jesus Christ as Lord at the same time. Our bodies are redeemed. Second, our bodies will be raised. Verses 13 and 14, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. God has an eternal purpose for your body. This is the opposite of the cultural view. Most of us come to hate our bodies. We're taught to do so. Too tall, too small, too fat, too short, too hairy, too old. We're often taught to think that the purpose of our body is bound up with our youthfulness and fitness, with how toned or functional our bodies are. Those are the only people who get to have sex in our cultural view. So we compare ourselves to others. We obsess about how to look good. Some of you know I sprained my ankle a few weeks ago. It's still bothering me. This week it messed up my back. At this point in the sermon, David Short, who I think is 60, is like, I assure you, if you're under the age of 30, after 30, it's all downhill. It's all weakness and disease and decay. <laughs> I'm 36. I'm like, I'm early into this. But Jesus has entered into our world in a human body, living life as a single person, laying himself down upon the cross, dying and being raised up to new life in his body. The same body, but renewed. After his resurrection, without weakness, without decay, without the possibility of death any longer. So this morning, and for all eternity, Jesus Christ is a human body. And if you are joined to Jesus, you are not simply redeemed, but God has a future use for your body. You will be raised to life, and it will be transformed, your body, to be perfect, without weakness, decay, deathless, and eternal, sinless, to glorify God forever. 
you remain your body. So it matters to God what we do with our bodies. Your body is meant for this life and for the next life as well. Strikingly, marriage is temporary, but your body is to be forever. So sexual autonomy then is an especially pernicious lie because it fractures us from the Lord Jesus, the one to whom we must be joined to experience this raising up. And it fractures us from our community and it fractures us from our true selves, who we are becoming and will be for all eternity. Our bodies are to be raised. Lastly, our bodies have a new resident. Beginning in verse 16, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the spirit will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Notice here, Paul does not condemn the practice of sex with a prostituted person because of the exploitative nature of it, the injustice of it. He very well could have. He doesn't condemn it around the coerced consent involved. There's a higher view of sexual well-being, sexual ethics here. Rather, he provides two options of being joined. Joined with a prostitute or being joined with the Lord. That word joined might also be glued, stuck together. I heard of a panel at UT a few years ago on sexual assault and sexual etiquette. And one of the questions put to the panel was, is it possible to have sex with no strings attached? And one of the panelists gave an absolutely brilliant answer to that question when they said, sex is a string. Biologically, of course, this is accurate. With the release of oxytocin that occurs during sexual intimacy, the same chemical released during nursing that bonds a mother and child, a a bond is created between the two who enjoy sex together. There is a joining together. And the reality of this means that when those partners are rent apart, like two pieces of paper glued together, there's a tearing, there's destruction. And do it enough with enough different pieces of paper, and that sheet is just shredded joined and torn apart multiple times. And the reality is the more sexual partners we have, the more shredded and torn our personality becomes. And it is impossible, humanly speaking, to be made whole. In the end, you have a shredded person. It's impossible to restore, humanly speaking. The only one who can restore us is God, the Holy Spirit, who comes to, who inhabits our bodies, So that we are joined to Jesus. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Spirit? If you trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that created all things, has come into your body and has begun a wondrous work of art restoration. In God's view, you are a flawed masterpiece. And if you find a masterpiece that is flawed, you don't burn it or throw it in the garbage. Some of you might remember that. Mr. Bean, where he sneezes on the masterpiece and then he tries to scrape it off and just makes a hash of it, makes it that much worse. The Holy Spirit is not like that. He is this master art restorer. He seeks to restore and perfect the masterpiece that you are. And he alone can make us our true selves. And when we become Christians, our disordered desires do not go away. I so wish that they did. I so wish that my own did. Someday they will, but not today. So some desires we affirm and some we deny. And both the desires we affirm and the desires we deny become the path along which the Spirit restores us. Draws us out of ourselves towards serving others, toward Christ, and repaints us in the colors of the glory of God. 
The ultimate purpose of our sex then is to act as a picture, an image of being joined to Jesus Christ. You do not have to have sex to be fully human. In singleness as well in marriage, we testify that we are joined to Christ by our faithfulness and purity, by our chastity. How then do we live in a culture where this is radically counter? How do we live? First, it seems to me we must put our own bedrooms in order. What is articulated, the vision that is put forward, is for those who are in Christ. And for far too long and in far too many ways, it seems to me, the church has sought to police the sexual activities of those beyond its bounds while avoiding, not attending to, the realities of our own lives. Our own sexual lives must reflect the vision to which we are called. Not just for our own sakes, but because we are members of Christ and members to one another. In Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches, if you even look upon someone lustfully, it's as though you have committed adultery. At the very least, what that seems to suggest is that my private, interior sexual life, my sexual thoughts, have ramifications for my community. Adultery is a community sin. These things are not unconnected. My holiness, my purity, my faithfulness matters to the communities of which I am a part. Second, we should be very hopeful. As the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our bodies, we have a new basis for compassion and for affirmation and denial. We have a different sort of spiritual power. In him, we have the capacity to serve one another, to glorify God in our bodies. Because of the Spirit's presence, we have that hope for ourselves, for one another, for change and transformation. And thirdly and finally, there's this little short command at the beginning of the 1 Corinthians reading. Do not be deceived. This command appears throughout the New Testament often when sexuality is the topic. Do not be deceived. It does not matter the messages you are receiving from the media, through the wider culture, from your family, your friends. Your body matters to God. He created you in that body with all its unique challenges and goodness. And he has joined you to himself and begun the work of restoration in you. Don't be deceived. Radical individualism with its vision of autonomy, authenticity, and affirmation will not help you become your true self. It is a great cruelty. This moment here, it seems to me there are Christian marriages where one spouse is thinking they no longer love the other, where they've succumbed, perhaps, to the vision of partnership, the, that marriage is for the meeting of my own needs rather than a covenantal union. Such persons are invited to repent, to turn back to Christ, to return to their spouse fully, to glorify God in their body. This morning, I know there are people locked in patterns of compulsive behavior. There is no transforming power in being true to yourself. Radical individualism will only increase your shame, your secrecy, your fear of rejection. Your body belongs to the Lord Jesus. You have been washed, set apart, and justified. He makes a claim upon you. Rather than, than make vows about behavior modification, come to Jesus. Speak to someone whom you trust, who can speak to you. You are not your own. You are forgiven in Christ. It does not matter whatever it is that we come to him with. It could be an affair. It could be a secret life. It could be disordered desires. It could be gender dysphoria. It could be struggles and signalness. Whatever it is, 
Let us bring ourselves to Jesus. And if someone confides in us one of these things, let us take one another to Jesus, to the consolation that he alone can bring. Let us take one another to the one who promises blessings a hundredfold in this life and in the next. And let us walk together into the wholeness and restoration he alone can bring. Let us be a people, a society of sexual failures, joined to Jesus, being restored by the power of his spirit, confiding in and compassionately receiving one another, and firm in the good news of God's moral vision. Let us pray. Gracious and almighty God, I pray that whatever that was said of you, that whatever that was just said that was born of you and your Holy Spirit would be fixed firmly in our hearts. And whatever was not of you would kind of blow away like the chaff in the wind. These are sobering and heavy things. Would you, by your spirit and your grace, guide and direct us as we ponder them, as we seek more fully to be yours own, to be your people together? And I pray even this day and this week to come that in our minds, in our conversation, the question of what might it mean for our bodies to bring glory to the Lord would be upon us, with us, and your spirit might work as only he can. We have great need of you. Would you come, Lord Jesus? Come, Holy Spirit. Amen.